So last one of this series, we've been talking and it feels like forever now about this whole idea of and, right? <laughs> that God looks down from heaven long, long, long ago and sees these people that he loves, that he's created, and he sees what we've done to ourselves. That rather than being a land of peace and love and joy, we've gone our own way. We've separated ourselves and we're now living in this land of my way and this land of either and this land of all. And so he looks down from heaven and he says, what have I got to do to bring these people back together again? To bring these people back to, together with each other? But first of all, back together with me because I haven't turned my back on them, even though they have turned away from me. And so he says, I got to send Jesus. He sends Jesus, his one and only son. You know the story. For 33 years, Jesus walks among us and he's teaching and he's sharing and he's encouraging and he's preaching. And as we've looked at, he's introducing this crazy concept of and. That we don't have to live separated from God in the either or, that we can live in the and. And so Jesus came and he said, it's not just about truth, it's about truth and grace. It's not just about faith or just about works, it's about faith and works. It's not just about giving or receiving, it's about giving and receiving. It's not that you're just good and they're bad, it's that you're good and bad. And as Jesus is reconciling all this stuff, he goes to the cross and he was dead. And scripture tells us, and now he is alive. And because of that, and now, everything happens. But the most important thing that's happening is that first we can be reconciled with God. And so I want to wrap up this little series with one final and. And it happens just a few days before the resurrected Jesus goes back to heaven. And it's found in Matthew 28. If you have your Bible or your tablet or your phone or whatever you use to, to digest scripture, turn to Matthew 28. And we're going to look at just very quickly the last four verses. And I believe that Jesus is saying in these verses... And there's just one more thing I need to tell you. And there's just one more thing that you need to know about what it means to live for me in this world. And grace and truth. And faith and works. And give and receive. Because we're and good and bad. And we were dead and now we are alive. And there's one more thing that you need to know. And in fact, I think in this and, there are kind of three little sub things that he wants us to know. So let me set the, the stage in the story. Matthew 28, 16. 
Then the 11 disciples, it's the first time that 11 had been written when talking about the disciples, right? Because one of them, Judas, had died. And we, 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 we talk about the impact that Jesus' death and resurrection had on this little band of brothers. But they'd also lost another one, Judas, who, who hadn't risen again. They were probably feeling pretty somber for a whole lot of reasons. They left for Galilee because that was where Jesus had arranged for them to meet, even though they didn't get what Jesus was saying. Going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. What this means is there was probably a little spot where they used to gather on the mountains. Maybe a little place out of the way so that they could have some, some time together with Jesus, with each other. And they were in that familiar place again, but everything about their uh, experience and what they knew to be familiar was unfamiliar. There was one less disciple, Jesus, their Savior, had died, but they'd seen him. This is probably the, the third or fourth sighting of him. There were many more to came, come before he left. A lot of... A lot of stuff happens around mountains in Matthew's gospel. In fact, uh, 16 major things happened. The Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, healing happened on the mount. I was telling this to someone the other day and kind of bemoaning that we don't have any mountains in Florida. And they said, have you ever been to Claremont? And I said, yeah, we don't have any mountains in Florida. <laughs> But they go to the mountain, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And one more thing. I want you to know, Jesus says, that I have been given authority on earth and in heaven. Before he says those words, though, the disciples see him coming from a distance. And they do what I imagine or what I hope most of us do when they saw Jesus coming. Not to run the other way, to hide, to freak out but to worship. Well, we don't know how they worshiped. You know, maybe, maybe Peter picked up a guitar and started strumming. You know, maybe they kind of like dug out the old hymn books and started singing or something. My, my sense is, though, that when they worshiped, something leapt in their heart because they were so thrilled, so delighted to see Jesus. But at the same time, Matthew records that while some were worshiping, some were doubting as well. He doesn't say who was doubting. Perhaps it was Thomas. He's famous for doubting. We read his story elsewhere. But my sense is that it wasn't just Thomas who was doubting in this moment. It was possibly all of them. And I know and suspect that because of my own experience. 
Because there are a lot of times in my life when worship and doubt somehow manage to hold that same space in my life. Does that, does that ever happen to you? So like the father that we read about and they got a sick daughter and brings the child to Jesus. He said, Lord, I believe. That's an act of worship. That's a statement of worship. But help my unbelief. Why? Because doubt was in that heart as well. John Wesley, one of my spiritual heroes, became a pastor. was ordained in the Anglican church. But he didn't feel that he had this relationship with Jesus that people talk about. He had religion down, but he didn't have relationship. One of his mentors said to him, hey, Mr. Wesley, you preach faith until you have it. He was worshiping by his preaching, but there was also doubt inside of him. On the road to Emmaus, another of the resurrection stories, two of the disciples are walking to a town called Emmaus. And Jesus kind of stands alongside them and, and walks with them. <laughs> a very funny story almost. They're telling the story about Jesus, about this guy who said he came from God and had been crucified. And Jesus is probably just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's with them and they're worshiping by his words, but they're doubting even though he's right there. It says they worshiped and they doubted. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm doubting, I want to slap myself on the hand and say, man, you're a bad Christian. But I don't think God slaps us on the hand for that. In fact, I think there's possibly something even holy about doubting. Because if we don't doubt, we don't have need for faith. And it is through faith that we get to know God. If you ever doubt what God is doing, if you ever doubt why things are happening, don't let that push God out of the equation. That's God encouraging you to trust him more. Faith can't exist without doubt, and we come to Christ through doubt. One day in heaven, we'll see Jesus face to face and our worship will be pure because there's, there's, no, there's no doubt there because he'll be tangible and it'll be real. But until then, worship and doubt have probably got to live with each other. But just because doubt is there, it doesn't mean he's not. And in fact, that doubt is an encouragement to increase our faith not run away from it. Does that make sense? That makes sense? And so some are worshiping and some are doubting. And the doubt says, we're not sure who's in charge. We're not sure what's going on. And so Jesus' first words to these worshiping doubters is all authority in heaven and earth has been on me. He says, you're worshiping, you're saying I'm in charge, you get that good, but you're doubting as well. And I want you to know that in your doubts, I'm in charge of that as well. 
I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. When we worship, we're worshiping because he's in heaven. When we doubt and we're still on the earth, doubt is a very earthy thing to do. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge of that too. And so this last hand of Jesus and one more thing. The first thing he wants us to know is that he's got this. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. It's like Jesus is saying to his followers, I got this. You worship when things are right. I got this. Your doubts when things don't make sense. I've got this. Everything else that happens between earth and heaven, I got this. There's not enough money to pay the bills. I got this. A health challenge is coming that's so heavy. I got this. I'm super stressed. I don't know how we're going to get through. I got this, Jesus says. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The word authority simply means power. I have it. It was given as he submitted himself to the cross, as he experienced the worst that humanity can experience, this, this death. And he had the authority from God to to rise from the dead. You know, in the scriptures throughout the gospel, there are a few times where it says Jesus has some authority. He says, I got the authority to forgive. There's another time where he says, uh, I, I got the authority to introduce you to the Father. But now he has all authority. Know this. He's got this. Whatever your this is, He's got it. How, how liberating to know that he's in charge. How freeing to know that about 90% of the things that we stress about, we can just let go. Because he's got it. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying, I got this. Second thing that Jesus says in this closing exhortation, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. Second thing that Jesus is exhorting us, because I've got this, Therefore, you've got to go get them. You've got to go in my name into this world to the people who don't know me, who are far from me, who haven't heard this message, and you have to well, love them well enough so that they can come to me and that they do know that I got this. We call this the Great Commission because Jesus is saying, Go, take this, this good news and go. The word good news, the phrase good news, is how we get the term 
evangelist or evangelical. Evangel means good news. So we as followers of Jesus are evangelicals because we, we bring the good news. Unfortunately, in our society, evangelicals have been uh, become known as something other than bringing the good news often, right? There's a lot of people who say, hey, I'm an evangelical, but they're not bringing any good news. Ironically, there's a lot of people who say, I am not an evangelical, who are bringing good news and therefore are evangelicals. But the question is, not do you want to term yourself with the label evangelical. The question is, is my life bringing good news? When I walk into a room, are people excited about what I'm going to bring, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do? When gossip comes, are people... Um, inviting me into that because they know that I want to feed off that or do they turn it down because they know that I want to bring some good news. When moments of crisis come and it feels like everything is collapsing, do people want me around because they think that I'm going to bring good news? We have no way to love and to change and to win this broken world to Jesus unless we're bringing good news of Jesus. And there is something wrong in our society, something very wrong when those who are to bring good news are not bringing good news. Jesus says, I've got this. That's my responsibility. You go love them. You go get them. That's your responsibility. But how often are our lives not proclaiming good news? Too often, with too great a price to pay because of that. Therefore, go with the good news. And make disciples of all nations. A disciple is one who, who follows. And here he's given us a, a strategy for discipleship. This is, this is how you go make disciples. Is you, you live like a disciple. You, you follow me and people will see in you that Christ is our hope. I've got this, Jesus says. But you got them. Go and make disciples. It's not, not just a case of inviting people to church, although that's really important to do. It's letting the life of, of Jesus be seen so clearly that they want to follow him and want to imitate them. That's our call. Go make disciples. Teach them. You know what's interesting? Up until this point in, in this society, teaching was kind of a, a dirty word because it was re reserved for a few privileged young boys. But Jesus is saying, go teach all people. Open the door of those who can be educated. 
Open the, the door wide so that everybody can learn about this good news that is found in Jesus. Teach them to obey. And ironically, Jesus is saying, let me, let me give you a picture of obedience. Obedience is when you carry this good news. Jesus is saying, he's got this. I got this. And you got them. And thirdly, he says this. And be sure of this, that I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that's the really, really good news. The message is good news. But the promise that Jesus will be with us always is the good news that we need to share the good news. Does that make sense? Surely I am with you always. Truly, I will be with you wherever you are to the very end of the age. Now, because time hasn't run out yet, and because there will be a tomorrow, that means that Jesus will be with us. One last thing. I want you to know that he's got this. That secondly, that you've got them. But as you go and love, as you go and care, know that he's with us. I used to have this practice when I was younger, when I would travel a lot. And I was really, uh, still am, I suppose, pretty um, insecure. It didn't take much for me to get a little bit overwhelmed and, 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 and scared. I had a, a warrior's stomach. And so I developed this little ritual inside of me that whenever I landed in a new place, I would just quickly, as soon as I could, just ask a question and say, hey, God, are you here? <laughs> And, and I think for a minute, I said, well, nothing's changed since he was there. And I thought about it logically. And I, 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 I prayed. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm here. You know, I, I never went anywhere, <laughs> never been anywhere where I've asked that question. And God hasn't been there. And you know what? We'll never find a place where God isn't. Now, there's lots of things that we can do that will separate us so it feels like God isn't there. And we've all been to some of those places, right? Where it feels like God isn't there. And that's not because God isn't there. It's because we've wrapped ourselves in sin that prevents us from seeing God, right? But the good news is, is that once we ask forgiveness, once we step away from that stuff, we'll see that God was right there because he's with us always. He's got this, we've got them, and it's okay because he is with us. So let me wrap up with one kind of crazy story. So about three years ago, we as a church um, were uh, threatened with some uh, 
kind of legal action because uh, some folks felt that we were um, doing things we shouldn't do in terms of how we related to the school and the city government. And we got some uh, threatening kind of legal letters and it caused a lot of turmoil, a lot of worry in my heart. A couple of weeks ago, a mutual friend of mine had become friends with the atheist group who was causing all that trouble. In a long story that I'll tell you another day, he says, Andy, I want you to come and meet my friend. We're going to meet this Wednesday. Me with this guy who caused us all this trouble and caused me all this frustration and all this pain. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to meet him. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to have this conversation. I, I, I'm not... I'm not sure whether I can contribute to a healthy and holy conversation about this. And then I realized that he promises to be with us. That there's nowhere that we can go, nowhere that I can go, that God already isn't. And therefore, when we go, wherever we go, we're going to be okay because God is there with us. Does that mean it'll be easy? Does it mean it's going to be smooth sailing? Absolutely not. But it does mean that God is with us. And if God is with us, and if God has all authority, and if we're following what God has asked us to do, then ultimately it's going to be okay. We live in a world of either and where there is so much separation where there is so much division, so much discourse, so much hatred, so much sin that separates. And Jesus came and he showed us another way, the way of and. And he wraps up his life on earth by saying, and I need you to know that I've got this. Whatever you're going through, I've got this. So I need you to know that this good news is so good, you cannot, you cannot keep it to yourself. You have to go with it. But I need you to know that as you go, I will be with you. And where I am, it's going to be okay. Here's the take-homes from today that I pray God would write upon our heart. He's got this. We got them. And he's with us. He's given us authority. He's given us a calling, a commission. But he's also promised that he'll be with us always.